episode 311 of the podcast with the title track from the new EP from the band The Surfsums. The EP is called Nuclear Winter in the Bay City. That's the name of the song as well. Just came out this month. They're a surf band based out of Lati, Finland. You can find them at The Surf. Zums and the zums.bandcamp.com or follow the link in the show notes over at the website monsterkidradio.net you know our website for the podcast Monster Kid Radio where we celebrate the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear classic monsters modern talk I'm your writer host producer Derek M. Cook and I've kicked most of the cold that I had last week so yes Welcome to the show, ladies and gentlemen. I'm excited to do this week's episode because we have a new voice. We have somebody new to add to the Monster Kid Radio roster, the, the family of guests here on Monster Kid Radio. We're going to be joined by filmmaker Seb Godain, and we're going to talk about, well, his upcoming project. He's got a crowdfunding campaign right now for the upcoming movie, like Canimator. But before we talk about that, we're going to talk about a classic monster movie, or maybe not so classic, depending on how you feel about the slime people. It's a movie from 1963. I kind of dig it, but you'll hear more about that here in a little bit. Before we get to all of that, though, a couple of announcements. First of all, if you head over to our website, you're going to see a couple of things that I've added. Some new additions across the top where you have links to our Facebook group, our Facebook page, our promos, our Patreon campaign. Well, there are now two new options here. One of them is an application for you to become a guest on Monster Kid Radio. Like I said, I love having new voices in the mix. If you've never been on Monster Kid Radio and you'd like to be, or you've been on the show in the past and, well, you'd like to come back, if we're not in contact by Facebook or email or whatever, fill out this form. It's a Google document. I get an email notification. I've already got a handful of incredibly cool topic suggestions for upcoming episodes of Monster Kid Radio with new guests and some returning favorites. So head over there if you're interested in becoming a guest of the show. Also on the website, and this one, this one's pretty exciting. Are you familiar with the website Letterboxd? Now it's Letterboxd without an E, so it's L-E-T-T-E-R-B-O-X-D. It is basically a movie catalog. I suppose you could use it as a way to track what movies you've watched, maybe what movies you own. Or, in the case of what listener Ken Blows has done for us, it's a very pretty breakdown of every movie that we've talked about here on Monster Kid Radio. If you are looking for particular movie coverage and you wonder if we talked about it here on the show, well, head over here and boom, it's all right there. And it's pretty up to date. And Ken's even included all the movies that we've talked about over at 1951 Down Place, the podcast uh, devoted to Hammer Films discussion that Scott Morris, Casey Criswell, and I were doing for a little while. It's currently on hiatus. And yes, I know I keep saying it. It is coming back soon fingers crossed it happens sooner rather than later but yeah there's a list there of all of those movies as well it's really cool ken did me a huge solid well he did you a huge solid by creating this letterboxed page you can sort the movies by decade by genre it's quite the thing ken thanks man this is awesome. Also on our website, we finally updated the section on the left-hand side of the page with all the people who are patrons of Monster Kid Radio at the AIP level or higher. That's been a little out of date. So that's now been updated as well to reflect everybody there who's helping to contribute to the show and support the show financially. We'll talk a little bit more about Patreon at the end of the show. And 
you know, I'll probably also mention the Rondo Awards, but uh, I'll mention it now because it can't be stressed enough. It's still voting season. You can still vote in the Rondo Hatton Classic Horror Awards over at RondoAward.com. Monster Kid Radio is up for an award in Best Multimedia. Of course, I'd appreciate your support, but check out every category because there are some incredible documentaries, movies, interviews, articles, and a place for you to write in your vote for somebody to be inducted into the Monster Kid Hall of Fame. I cannot stress enough, Vince Rotolo, the man who brought us the B-movie cast for nearly a decade. We lost him last year, but his legacy lives on in the potosphere and Monster Kid Dumb in general, and we'd love to see him be inducted into the Monster Kid Hall of Fame. You can fill out your ballot and put his name there, but I'd also recommend you head over to the Classic Horror Film Board's forums and voice your support for inducting Vince, because really... He deserved this a long time ago, and I think it'd be pretty special if we can get him in now. We also have some feedback this week. Why don't we go ahead and dive into some of that? Now, last week's episode was all about Kong Skull Island, and we had some mixed reviews on the film. Paul McComas was our featured guest last week, and we spent, I'd say, probably two hours. I'd have to go back and double check, but I think it was a nearly two-hour conversation, or Kong-versation, about Kong Skull Island, and we talked a little bit about the King Kong mythos overall, that sort of thing. And then we had some call-ins as well, and now I've got some follow-up feedback from that episode. I want to say, I know that the opinions of the film were varied. Paul was a little bit more cool on the movie than I was. A lot of the people who called in were actually a lot more excited about the movie than either of us. I think it's important to say that an engaging conversation or criticism about a movie, I think that's always going to have a place here on Monster Kid Radio. That said, I do try to keep things pretty positive, which I think listeners like Will M are picking up on, and I hope you are too. Will wrote in an email, Dear Derek, I've just discovered your podcast through your appearance on the Kaiju Cast, and I started with your conversation episodes. I'm a big fan of King Kong. I'm not a big fan of King Kong 1976, but I thoroughly enjoyed the discussion. In general, I'm going to say that getting a guest who loves the film you're discussing is always a good move. I'd much rather hear someone say nice things about a film I don't like than hear them tear apart a film I do like. Not saying there's not room for criticism, but it's nice to keep things mostly positive. Keep up the good work. Cheers. You know, well, that's really kind of the point of what I do here on Monster Kid Radio. Every once in a while, uh, we might get a little critical, and criticism, again, there's room for it. I want to make sure that Monster Kid Radio is a positive experience and we're honoring everybody's opinion and, and values when it comes to these movies. I've gotten some personal feedback on Facebook and by email expressing opposite opinions about Kong Skull Island last week. And while I honor those, I also honor Paul's take on the film. I've got another email here. This is from Mark B. Hey, Derek, first time writer. I listen every week. Thanks for the memories. As for Skull Island, I guess we all have our separate opinions and complaints. I just can't get past the fact that there are no dinosaurs. I saw the movie spoiler-free and couldn't wait to see a newly imagined prehistoric world. Instead, I got an awkward mashup of Kong and Pacific Rim, which had much more imaginative monsters, by the way. I also think that Samuel Jackson is suffering from a severe case of overexposure. His performance borders on self-parody, and none of the other performances impressed me very much. I also did not care for the politically correct natives. I did like how Kong himself looked, but his size was ridiculous. I do plan to see it again to reevaluate. I know my expectations were high. Mark's email continues, but just to kind of comment on that, I, I do agree with Samuel L. Jackson's uh, performance. He's fun to watch. He's engaging. He's charismatic. And man, he's amazing to listen to. He's solid. He gives us what we want every single time. 
But you're right, he does appear in everything and, and sometimes sounds the exact same way. So, so there's a little bit of that. And yeah, I would have liked more dinosaurs in this one. Didn't need them so much in the 76 film. Go back to the conversation for that. But yeah, I I agree uh, with that. But man, Kong looked amazing, didn't he? And he sounded great. All right, Marcy Mill continues. Also, this is long overdue, but I wanted to give you a very special Frankenstein memory of mine. Every Saturday night, my dad and I would watch Creature Features together. I think my first Frankenstein film was Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman. I will never forget the opening credits with the lab equipment and the smoke spelling out the title. So creepy. Mark, I agree. Uh, Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman is actually one of my absolute favorite Universal monster films. I know it wasn't technically a monster rally because there's only the two monsters in it. But as a monster mashup goes, I dig it quite a bit. And Lon Chaney Jr.'s performance as Larry Talbot is just as strong in this film, I feel, as in The Wolfman. And Talbot's resurrection scene? Eerie. And so good. Oh, man. We did do a slew of Frankenstein episodes in February. I think we had at least three episodes in a row. There was going to be a fourth, but we had a hard drive crash. But we did some Frankenstein films in February. So go check those out if you haven't heard them yet and you're into Frankenstein. Uh, finally, Mark says one more thing. I recently saw The Mighty Peking Man. If you haven't seen it, it is so up your alley. Thanks for reading. Beast Wishes, Mark. I have not seen that movie. I need to see it. It's on my list, <laughs> my ever-growing list of movies that I need to see. So... I'll bump it up a little bit on my list because if it's got high marks from other monster kids, I probably am going to dig it. Thanks for writing in. We also had an email, actually a couple of emails from Jason S. And I'm not going to go over the entire email. Uh, Jason, I will be in contact with you privately, but I do want to share some of these thoughts because I think they're important. Hey, Derek, did I just listen to someone complain about Kong Skull Island's budget? Didn't Willis O'Brien have a lot of trouble getting financing because his effects were so time-consuming and expensive? Does Paul think that all CGI comes cheap? Why crap all over the Toho Kong films while simultaneously espousing the merits of low-budget filmmaking? Could you do much better than those Toho films without much time or money? I felt the new Kong is very much an evolution of Toho's Kong. Just want to clarify that I adore you, your guests, and MKR. I love MKR for the fact that you have nothing but love and acceptance to films mainstream folks usually look down on. So when I heard some of these comments, the claws came out. Love you, Derek. MKR is the best. Jason. You know, again, I'm going to say we're going to honor Paul's thoughts on the movies, and I'm going to honor yours as well. You know, it really is about a celebration of being a monster kid. And here's the nice thing. Here's, here's the wonderful thing. We have some incredible King Kong movies. Uh, the first film, I think, is an undisputed, unmitigated, nobody can question. It is a classic film. It's an important film. My cat just said something in the background. He agrees. It's an important film. It's a wonderful movie. It's something that I can put in and watch anytime, or at least I would if I had it on Blu-ray. Why don't I have it on Blu-ray? Anyway, I also really enjoy the 76, and I know a lot of people dig 2005's version. It's got its fans, and obviously, Kong's Skull Island has its fans, too. I don't know if I was really clear at the end of last week's episode where I was giving my final thoughts on Kong's Skull Island. I'm going to blame a lot of it on my being really, really sick and being like two parts cold medicine, three parts human being at that point. I liked Kong Skull Island better than Peter Jackson's version of the film. I'm not a big fan of Jackson's version. I just felt that that one really was bloated. But again, I know a lot of people dig it. I know a lot of you guys and gals, and that's cool. I, I hope you guys and gals can respect that I'm not a big fan, and I'll respect that you are. You, you, whatever. 
we all love these movies, and that's what Monster Kid Radio is all about, is enjoying these movies, having this shared experience, talking about these movies, being Monster Kids, and carrying this Monster Kid thing forward into now using technology like podcasts or Facebook or social media or any of these things that we do. Obviously, the more people we get together, and I would love to see more Monster Kids pop up, and, and I would love to see the modern-day Monster Kids thing become a phenomenon but as more monster kids pop up and, and start communicating with each other, yeah, we're going to have some differences of opinion. That's cool, too. I love having the in-depth discussions about these movies and to really dive deep. And I think Paul brings a lot of that to the table. He is certainly an expert when it comes to 1976's King Kong. And he's done a lot of research and a lot of work researching the other films. His work as a film scholar, I think, is undisputed. And that's why I enjoy having him on the show. In fact, I enjoy it when he calls in as well. Now, during my final thoughts of last week's episode, I mentioned or I questioned, why is the movie set in Vietnam? Wasn't really 100% clear as to why that was done, why that choice was made. Did it need to be set in Vietnam? Paul had some thoughts on that. Hey, Derek, it's Paul McComas calling to thank you for interviewing me about Kong Skull Island and for letting that interview go long, go Kong-sized, so that each of us, you and I, could put in our two cents or, I guess, our two dollars given the length, which was two hours. I wasn't going to call in because, you know, I pretty much said what I wanted to say, but you asked me a direct question and suggested that I call in. I think the question was along the lines of why did the movie, why would the movie focus on uh, Vietnam slash apocalypse now rather than some more recent conflict? And to me, the answer is because the more recent conflict as the focus would be controversial. This is not a brave movie. Uh, this is a pulpy genre movie. And they picked something that is in the fairly distant past at this point, Vietnam, and uh, made that their focus because, by and large, it's accepted that the war was a mistake. And uh, even many Republicans and many people who supported it alongside Lyndon Johnson from my party uh, concur. So if they were to try and set this uh, during the Iraq War, uh, they would turn off a lot of people who still mistakenly believe that that thing was a good idea. That's my thought. This is not a movie that courts controversy or that uh, steps boldly into public discourse. I hope your cold is gone. And if it's not, I suggest hot chicken soup with a lot of fresh garlic pressed into it and a little human flesh. I'm not going to shill or plug here because that, in my opinion, should be done when one is interviewed, not during Collins. Collins should be reactions, and I guess in this case I'm reacting to your question. Yeah. <laughs> I have nothing left to say for once. Hi, Derek. I just voted, by the way, and uh, voted for you in the two categories uh, that everyone should vote you, for you in, and uh, that is podcast and Monster Kid of the Year. I guess that was a plug, but not for me. Bye. I like Paul's answer. That makes a lot of sense to me. I, I can see a lot of truth in that. And then he also said something that, that caught my attention, and I want to make sure that I stress this. He said that this is a pulpy genre film, and that's exactly what it is. And 
I love my pulp. I love my old pulp. I love Robert E. Howard. He's one of my absolute favorite writers. I love Lovecraft. He's a pulp writer as well. And a lot of the fiction from that era I really enjoy. And I love reading quote-unquote new pulp. I am a big fan of the new pulp movement. I believe in what a lot of these new pulp authors are doing. I've had new pulp authors on the show. Frank Schildener has been on the show repeatedly, and he's a new pulp guy. So yeah, Kongskull Island, definitely a pulpy film, for better or worse. <laughs> he mentioned uh, not plugging himself, so I'm going to do that. Paul McComas can be found at paulmccomas.com. I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes and listen to the end of the interview in last week's episode to hear about some of the new exciting things that's happening with him and specifically his novel, Unplugged. Very, very cool stuff. Paul, thank you for calling in. And thanks for the votes. I still don't know what to say when people say I'm voting for you for Monster Kid of the Year. I, I don't know if I have a shot at it, but... It means a lot. Thank you. All right, I got one more email. This comes from Chris F. from Georgia. Derek, I'm writing in regards to your episode on Kongskull Island. It was great to hear reactions from both sides of the spectrum, positive and negative, and the in-depth discussions on the pros and cons of the movie. You mentioned that the movie sets up other monsters to possibly appear in later installments in the Monster Universe. Are they calling it the Monsterverse at this point, or is it Monster Universe? You know, as an aside, and I was talking with Chris McMillan about this the other day uh, in person when he and I met up to talk shop, and... I'm a little bummed because I feel like the Universal movies, the, the cycle that's coming with those with the mummy and the Invisible Man and all that, those should be called the Monsterverse or the Monster Universe. Let this be the Kaijuverse or something. I, I don't know. Anyway, he continues. When I heard about the Monster Universe, this got me thinking about who I'd like to see on the big screen. My question is this. Well, it seems like they're going to use a majority of the Toho giant monsters since they're showing that this monster threat is a global thing, wouldn't it be cool if they were to get monsters from other countries? I'd be lying if I were to say the monster kid in me wouldn't be ecstatic to see Godzilla or Kong go up against maybe Gorgo, Reptilicus, or dare I say Japan's other giant reptile, Gamera. Well, it does seem like a novel idea. I feel like there'd be some licensing issues with those monsters. So as always, keep up the good work and I look forward to many, many more great episodes. Sincerely, Chris from Georgia and yeah, Chris, I'd love to see a big mix. I'd love to see a big mashup of these movies. I'd like to see Ultraman come in and give it to Gorgo or Gamera or Godzilla. That would be fun for me, but it is a licensing thing. And, and I don't think we'll ever see Godzilla and Gamera on the screen at the same time or in the same movie unless Toho were to buy the Gamera rights from somebody. But I don't think that studio, and man, I forget who it is off the top of my head, but I don't think that studio's in danger <laughs> right now uh, financially. So I don't think they're going to be for sale anytime soon. And Ultraman... It's not going anywhere. In fact, my understanding is that Ultraman is actually bigger in Japan than Godzilla is. So, yeah, I don't see that happening as well. Although Ultraman does have a, a stronger connection to Godzilla with the Subaraya thing. But I'm rambling. Yes, I would love to see a big mix. And, you know, I mentioned the Universal movies. And that's one of the things that I am looking forward to that series. That cycle of movies that are becoming because I would love to see the mummy fully integrated into the Frankenstein Dracula stories the way that it could have been in Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, but they ended up writing the mummy out of that. So it didn't happen. I would love to see that mix. I love mashups. I think I talked about this last week that I do really enjoy crossovers and events like that. I haven't heard too much about it lately, but my understanding is that one of the lower budget studios, and it might've even been AIP, their properties were going to be fine tuned and, put into a series of films as well with an interconnected continuity. 
I don't remember what titles they were, what movies they were, but there were some of the the smaller, lower budget movies that sometimes turned up on Mill Creek Entertainment box set. So they may even be in the public domain or at least of that ilk. I'd love to see those kind of mixed up and mashed together. I also know that there are some projects by somebody that you know and have heard on the show that do combine some of these things. That's all I'm going to say. I'm not at liberty to really talk about it much more, but I love the idea. Somebody else on Facebook made a comment about the caretaker character in the Screaming Skull maybe being related to Torgo from Manos. And yeah, I mean, they're very, very similar. So why not? I'd love to see those two movies together. Anyway, I'd love to see that mashup too. I'd love to see it. Would love to see it. I guess we did see Godzilla fight Bambi once, if that counts. I want to thank everybody for writing in and all the personal messages that I got via Facebook and by email about Kong Skull Island. It means a lot that you're engaged with the show. So thank you for being part of the Monster Kid Radio experience for me. I have babbled on way too much. It's like my voice has been building up and building up and saving up all this talking since I was sick last week. And oh, by the way, Paul, your advice, human flesh, not not happening. I'm a vegetarian, man. Anyway, it's like my voice is ready to just kind of burst onto the scene with a podcast. So Why don't we let it burst into your ears and this is starting to sound weird. So, moving on. We're going to get to Seb Godain. We're going to talk about the movie The Slime People. And we're going to talk about a few other things along the way because that's what monster kids do when they get together. We're going to get to all of that. Whew. Right after this. Welcome to the crypt. You are invited on a guided tour of a world of darkness where nightmares become reality. Dead lives. Dead lives in Tales from the Crypt. The Vault of Horror is about to open. You will learn its terrifying secrets. From the Crypt, from Cinerama Releasing, rated PG, parental guidance suggested. Some material may be unsuitable for pre-teenagers. Come into the cave of the bat demons. They are waiting for you. They are longing for your blood. They hope you'll drop in to join them in horror of the blood monsters and you a ghastly journey into the weird world of the undead. You will feel your flesh crawl and tingle as creeping creatures slither out of the night to satisfy their unholy cravings. But I warn you, don't come to see horror of the blood monsters alone. Bring a friend. Bring a fiend. Bring your nerve. Horror of the blood monsters in weird color. Rated GT. Well, Cindy, this is the last box. Supermates has now officially moved into Fire and Water Podcast Headquarters. Where do you want this Starman short box? Put it over by the classic monster DVDs. Be careful. Don't crush my superpowers Batmobile. Calm down, Christopher. Hey, you put the Star Trek DVDs on top of my comic action Wonder Woman Invisible Plane. Oh, 
Jeez. Well, uh, now we can tell everyone that Supermates can be found exclusively at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Now, if they subscribe via iTunes, they shouldn't notice a change, right? Right. Or if they listen through the main Fire and Water Network feed. No change. They can just find the show's home, show notes, etc. here at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Well, I'm going to go take a dip in the Aquaman-sized swimming pool Rob has, but I am not putting on that mirror costume. It smells fishy. Oh, come on. It'll be fun. Hey, hey, don't trip over that life-size shag standy. thing is disturbingly real. Supermates, the husband and wife geek cast, now a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Find us on iTunes or at fireandwaterpodcast.com. From the mysterious reaches of infinity, a gigantic astral body hurtles towards the earth to terrorize and seal the doom of an unprepared mankind. How can we prevent it? A job for the Army. They've got the guided missiles, the nuclear warheads. Intercept and destroy it before it strikes. As if by design, this death-dealing meteor plunges into the depths of the sea. emerges an awesome monster such as human eyes have never seen. Unless stopped somehow, others will land and suck the earth dry of all electrical and atomic energy resources. Now you're the only one that knows, and you will never tell. A metallic vampire stalking the earth. Its purpose to drain it of its energy, every last bit of vitality. Cronus, absorbing all the dynamic strength of this universe to make him so powerful as to withstand any force. I am Dracula, and I bid you welcome to the podcast devoted to the classic, and sometimes not so classic, genre cinema of yesteryear. And I offer you this warning. Sometimes Derek and his guests get excited, and they may spoil a movie or two. You know how excited monster kids can get sometimes. If Monster Kid Radio spoils a movie for you, do not come whining to me. I cannot stand whines. I love having new voices on Monster Kid Radio, and especially I love having creative types, writers, actors, 
filmmakers, and I've got a filmmaker on the show this week. I'd like to welcome to the show Sebastian Godain. How are you doing, sir? I am doing wonderfully. So Seb's been reaching out to me because he's got a movie in the works. It's currently on Indiegogo. We've got a crowdfunding campaign. The movie's called Lycanimator, and it looks like it's going to be a throwback kind of 1980s style monster movie. Am I right on that? Yeah, you know, it's like late 70s straight on through to the early 90s. That entire Hmm. era amalgamated. Okay, and we were talking a little bit about this before we started recording. This is your first film as a director. My first feature film, yeah. Wow. How long have you been involved in making independent movies? Since I was 15 years old, I think. Wow. 15. Is it something you always wanted to do, or did you fall into it? Yeah, I wanted to do it since I was about six or seven years old. Before that, I wanted to be a paleontologist, but then I figured <laughs> out that I like the idea of, it wasn't dinosaurs, it was monsters that really fascinated me, so I decided I'd rather make them than dig them up. You have a little bit more control over them that way? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Now, this is the first one you've directed, but you've appeared in a handful of others. Is this the first time you've been involved in actually creating your own, or have you been producing others, or second unit directing, or anything like that? You know, I've done short films before. I did a couple that were pretty well received, and uh, I uh, co-wrote a couple scripts that to this day remain unproduced, sadly. And uh, beyond that, I've crewed on a couple things, like I was a behind-the-scenes documenter on Johnny Gruesome, which comes out sometime this year, and acted here and there in a couple other genre efforts. Is there anything that you think Monster Kids, listeners of Monster Kid Radio, might be familiar with or or should go check out? I think that they are going to like Johnny Gruesome because Greg's a huge fan of the Universal Monster movies, and there are several scenes that are a direct homage to James Whale's Frankenstein. Johnny Gruesome, that's based on... Is it a novel? Yeah. And that was written by uh, Greg Lamberson. And I think I've interacted with him on Facebook, but I haven't talked to him in quite some time. But yeah, that's based on a novel that he wrote a few years back. And that's finally going to be realized. I know it's something he's been working on for a while. So that's pretty fantastic. That's coming up maybe later this year, next year, sometime, you think? Yeah, it's sometime this year, I believe. I also suggest that horror fans and monster kids pick up the novel because it's chock full of references that they'll love like there's a scene where johnny is climbing up a building and they describe his movements as being like mechanic kong from king kong escapes (laughs) okay so i'm sold king kong escapes is one of my absolute favorite films so i'm there i'm in i'm all in it's a great movie (laughs) it is right yeah the fantastic duel of the century the most ferocious battle in history the flesh and blood king kong fights his most incredible enemy a 60-foot robot king kong forged of super steel king kong escapes all new all thrilling in technicolor king kong battles missiles monsters and a king kong of steel king kong escapes a toho company limited picture a universal release doesn't get the respect it should no no not even nearly i think it's the second best kong movie Oh, wow. Okay. And the first being, I'm assuming, the original for you? Yeah. Okay. Okay. I want to make sure you know, <laughs> we can still be friends. Okay. We're good. We're good. Well, that's fantastic. Well, of course, we'll talk a little bit about Lee Canimator at the end. We'll make sure there's links to the 
Indiegogo page in the show notes. As of this recording, we've got about a month left of crowdfunding. And because it's Indiegogo, any money that's raised for the crowdsourcing campaign does go to the filmmakers. It's not like Kickstarter where it's all or nothing. Anything that you contribute will help get this movie produced. And I'm assuming one of the rewards or perks is getting a copy of the movie. I'm looking at it right now. Yeah, 20 bucks. You get a copy of the DVD. Not, not a bad deal. Oh, you got Joel D. Wincoop in there. That's great. Well, when Seb reached out to me, I was like, well, you know, this sounds like a 70s, 80s, 90s kind of movie. Monster Kid Radio is firmly in like the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, a little bit of 70s. So I'm trying to figure out a way to tie this conversation into a movie that we talk about here on Monster Kid Radio. And he mentioned the word slime. And of course, my brain went immediately to the slime people from 1963. Of caves and sewers come the slime people to kill, kill, kill. There is no escape from the slime people. The slime people. can stop the horror of the slime people. The Slime People is a movie that I've actually talked about in the past with the late Vince Rotolo over on the B-Movie cast. Or actually either talked about it with him or, or heard about it from him. Either way, really enjoyed this movie. I was glad that Seb brought it up because it gave me a chance to revisit the film. But Seb, I, we can't get into this yet. We have something that we do here on Monster Kid Radio, a game that we play mm-hmm. called The Classic Five. I've got a deck of cards here. And every one of these cards has a question on it, a yes or no style question about classic monster movies. You like this one or that one better? No wrong answers, but they are a way for listeners to learn a little bit more about our guests. And since you've never been on the show before, I thought we'd play the classic five. You ready to play, sir? I am ready. All right. We'll one more shuffle. All right. Completely random. Card number one right off the top. What do you prefer more, Hammer Films or the classic Universal Cycle? When I was younger, Universal, but now probably Hammer. Oh, okay. I think that uh, Universal is untouchable. Like, I will never say a single bad thing about those movies. It's a rule of mine. But Hammer has more of the ability to kind of just transport me into the film's world in a greater depth, I feel. That's a good way to put it. All right, card number two. What prop from a classic monster movie would you like to own? The Oxygen Destroyer from the original Godzilla. Oh, man, how amazing would that be? This is Tokyo, once a city of six million people. 
What has happened here was caused by a force which, up until a few days ago, was entirely beyond the scope of man's imagination. Now, let's have it, Steve. What about this monster story of yours? Well, it's big and terrible. way toward the city's main line of defense. 300,000 volts of electricity strung around the city as a barrier. So cool. Oh, yeah. Right, card number three. The mole people or the Morlocks? Oh, man. Uh, the more... Ah, uh, nah. Ah, uh, the mole people. Yeah? Yeah, I think the mole people are much cooler than the Morlocks. Gentlemen, we're in 3000 B.C. To reach this lost civilization, science had followed a trail through burning desert sands, through the roaring avalanches of Mount Kuitara, and finally, deep into the bowels of the earth. Not even history had recorded the existence of this unknown empire of darkness. There is no world beyond ours. If I ever get out of here, into my world. The world of light and flowers. Would you come with me? Never before had outsiders beheld such sights. The sacred ritual of the sun death. The blazing sacrificial chambers. The court of the all-powerful high priests of Ishtar. You will die in the fire of Ishtar. The blood-lusting mole people storming from their subterranean caverns. Plus, the mole people's got John Agar in the film, so yeah, you know, can't can't top that. You're not wrong. Card number four, favorite classic monster movie sequel. Oh, that's tough. Going off on a limb, I'll probably say Son of Frankenstein. Over Bride of Frankenstein. Yeah, that's. Wow. Uh, yeah, it's weird. I. I used to have this huge reverence for Bride, and then I rewatched it last year, and I realized just how much I prefer the first and the third to it. Twenty years ago, in the barony of Frankenstein, a monster created by man stalked through the country, aiming and killing. In time, Frankenstein, maker of the monster, died. The monster disappeared. Now, after twenty years, the son of Frankenstein returns. And fear grips the village anew. A man tainted by the blood of his father can forget his human soul and carry on the diabolical work of the Frankenstein. As a man, I should destroy him. But as a scientist, I should do everything in my power to bring him back to conscious life. Benson, turn on the generator. Produced on a vast scale, Universal Son of Frankenstein presents the most fearsome cast in the history of the screen. Basil Rathbone. In his heart, warm human emotions. In his mind, the monster mania. It's alive. Alive, you mean? Yes, alive, but alive. I thought you said our experiments I know, I know. I do thought we failed, but we haven't. I've actually seen it walk. Karloff, rising from the past to spread new terror. Dugosi, sinister, mysterious, evil. You'll see that. They hanged me once. Lionel Atwill, 
grim hatred in his blood. One doesn't easily forget, Herr Baron, an arm torn out of the roots. Josephine Hutchinson, her young beauty a magnet to the menace around her. I hate it here, Wolf. I'm terribly afraid all the time. I think you're a worse fiend than your father. Where is this monster? Where is he? I'll stay by your side until you confess. And if you don't, I'll feed you to the villagers. Interesting. I, I like Son of Frankenstein quite a bit. Normally when that card comes up and they bring up Frankenstein, brides, where most people go. So that's... Hmm. Of course he got Lugosi and Son, so... Are giving his best performance. I, I would agree with you there, sir. You are not wrong, to, to quote you. All right, last card, card number five. Favorite Godzilla foe? Oh, man, Gigan. Wow, okay. From beyond the stars come the most fearsome monsters in the galaxy. Only Godzilla stands in their way in Godzilla on Monster Island. Is even Godzilla strong enough to defeat the invaders? Matching unbelievable strength. Exchanging incredible death-dealing rays. Don't miss Godzilla on Monster Island. Rated G. Yeah, I love that thing. It's such a weird, kooky design, but they make it so threatening. I think it's one of the coolest monsters, period. Gaiken doesn't get a lot of love. He's only appeared in a handful of movies, not like Ghidra or the others, right? No, he's only been in three movies. No, with those hook hands and everything, you're right, he's kind of a... A hodgepodge, just like they, they picked whatever pieces they had sitting around the shop that day and made a suit out of it. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how to describe it. He's like a chicken with a buzzsaw stomach, and he's got a lizard tail, and it's weird. <laughs> I love it. Right on. Well, that was the Classic Five. How do you feel? I feel like that was a perfect way to get into this. There we go. You survived. Awesome. All right, let's talk about the slime people. We're going to go from Gigan to the slime people. <laughs> there, there's a jump. <laughs> When, when I brought it up, you said that this movie terrified you as a kid. So this is one you'd seen before. Yeah, I saw it when I was like six or seven, I think. Because there used to be a channel over here called Drive-In Classics. And every Saturday morning, they'd show something like this. So I'd wake up at like 6 a.m. every Saturday to see one of these things. And one time, it was the slime people. Nice. Not getting up early to watch cartoons. Getting up early to watch monster movies. Yeah, because the, the cartoons would start at like 9 a.m. So oh, have- okay. So you got plenty of time. You're good. <laughs> Right, well, priorities, too, you know? I mean, come on. Monster movies, cartoons, you know? What are you going to do? Watch the slime people or the Muppet babies? Come on. You're not wrong. See? See? <laughs> Is this the last time that you saw it previous to talking about it here on the show, or have you seen it a couple of times since then? No, this was the first time since then. Oh, wow. Yeah. Did you grow up watching these types of movies then? Yeah, I can't remember a time when I wasn't watching these movies. I want to say the first one that I remember seeing was probably, and this is an odd one, was Frankenstein Meets the Space Monster when I was like five. Wow. Yeah. your eyes dare witness total terror. Frankenstein Meets the Space Monster. is it for the first time on the screen america's missile might mobilized 
against annihilating invaders from outer space. We have come here to this planet for one purpose only, to acquire breeding stock to repopulate our planet. See the kidnapping of the Earth Maidens for the love-starved slaves of the sterile planet. Very good. We have done well, Nadia. I am pleased, Princess. You are satisfied. I will be satisfied when we have enough more like her to commence phase three. See the terrifying invasion of the beach party. A United States astro-robot become a creature of death. For the first time, see Earth Horror versus Space Terror. Frankenstein meets the space monster in Futurama. That's one I almost talked about last month during Frankenstein February. That that one's a goofy one, but I love it. Great movie. Great movie. Yeah. That was James Karen. A very young James Karen, which is odd to see. Well, that's cool. Uh, you know, you're a little bit younger than I am, so to know that there are people younger than me out there loving and watching some movies growing up, that's fantastic and gives me hope. Yeah. Because yeah, you're in your early 20s, right? Yeah, I'm 21. Wow, that's fantastic, man. Good man. Thank Keep you. it up. So, growing up watching these types of movies, coming back and reviewing or revisiting the slime people, I think I know the answer to this because we chatted a little bit before we started recording while I was checking levels and everything else. How did it hold up for you? It looked the same way I remembered it looking. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it's a little bit duller than I remembered it being. Outside of like the opening 10 minutes where there's a good sense of dread throughout, I feel like it doesn't really carry that feeling throughout the entire runtime. Yeah, I, I could see that. Now, I, I still love the film. Mm-hmm. And I think it's strength, like you said, within the first five, 10 minutes, when we're setting up the story and setting up the world is where it really does excel. Especially with the music, the way it's kind of overlaying everything. And you see the dead body on the beach, like right off the bat, that's kind of shocking actually i think for well i guess it's 66 isn't it and 63 66 so maybe it wasn't as shocking but i found it shocking i didn't expect that i didn't expect it either and another thing i didn't remember is that it only takes 30 seconds for them to show you one of the monsters yeah they're not shy about them are they they knew that they were the best thing in the movie and they shoved them right in your face yeah the reports are is that they spent more than half the budget on these suits I believe it. They look like something from one of the better Doctor Who episodes. Yeah, I could see that. Like a classic Who vibe, sure. I don't know much about the suits. Do you know much about the film at all in terms of like the production or who, who worked on it? You know, I know a bit about the production, but as we're finding actual details about the suits, I couldn't dig much up. I wanted to say it was somebody noteworthy because it looks like somebody who had a lot of experience making these kinds of things, but... I couldn't dig anything up about it. Yeah, I don't know much either. If there's any listeners out there who know much about the production of this film, these suits, I I really dig the look of the monsters. Uh, They've got a nice retro who vibe, like you said. I'd love to have an army of action figures of these things. They just look cool. 
Yeah, me too. I was just thinking this because I'm an action figure nut as well. And I just was thinking how cool it would be to have a figure of at least one of those things with their little spears and whatnot. <laughs> the Lance is such an effective, scary looking monster. And they use these spears and they are able to overtake the entire city of LA over the matter of what, two days? Yes. Which yeah, I watched some reviews about this movie leading up to this just to kind of prep and see what other people might have caught about the film, that sort of thing. And that is one thing that a lot of people kind of question. It's like, come on. <laughs> in two days, L.A. is overtaken and our lead character doesn't know anything about it until he lands. Was he up in the air for two days? How did he not hear about what's going on? Yeah, you know, it's best not to question these things. Yeah, exactly. Now, our lead guy is Robert Hutton, played by – or, yeah, he's our guy. And he's playing Tom Gregory. He's a pilot that we – I guess can call the lead character in the film. And Robert Hutton directed the film. This is his only film that he directed. Don't oh. know if something happened on the production of the film that made him not want to direct anything else, but you were about to say something. Yeah. What happened is that he didn't get paid. Oh. So he lost interest in directing from that moved to England and became a screenwriter. I believe he wrote the horror film persecution while he was over there. Oh, okay. He's got a, a strong leading man look mm -hmm. he has that kind of striking face and the features and the nose and the hair i mean he looks great as a leading guy leading actor it's a shame he didn't get to do more genre work i mean i do see something like they came from beyond space on his imdb credit i don't know much about that film either and apparently he was in the 1972 tales from the crypt from amicus so very small and previous guest frank deets will be i'm sure screaming out right now telling me that he was in trog so <laughs> frank loves trog oh man Trog. Yeah, it is. You know what? I said he didn't do a lot of genre work, but I'm sitting here looking at his credit list. This is how prepped I was for the show, ladies and gentlemen. I'm now looking at his credit list, and I'm seeing a handful of movies that would fit in right at home here. Monster Kid Radio, Torture Garden, you know, The Vulture. You know, it looks like he did a handful. The Vulture. But, you know, the Invisible Invaders, going back to John Agar. So, yeah, he did quite a bit. All right. So, I'd take it all back. I would edit all that stuff out, but whatever. I'll leave it in there. So, he didn't get paid, and I did stumble across a few other bits here and there online talking about the movie and how they ran out of money about what seven, nine days into the production. Yeah. It seemed to have been a very slapdash production to the point where I can't remember which actress, but one of them was given 30 bucks and told to go buy her own wardrobe. I did see that too. Was that Susan Hart that was told that? I believe so. Yes. She's one of the female leads, the older of the two daughters of the professor we run into Susan Hart played Lisa. Susan Hart, her name may be well known to some listeners here because she currently owns the rights to, I think it's 11 American International Picture Productions. She's the widow of one of the AIP guys. I always forget which one. Uh, but it's because of her we do not have I Was a Teenage Werewolf or I Was a Teenage Frankenstein on DVD. Darn it. I Was a Teenage Werewolf, the most terrifying picture of our time. I was a teenage werewolf. Fantastic, bewildering. A motion picture to stand beside the greatest horror stories of all time. I was a teenage werewolf. I don't think I can look at her the same way now. <laughs> I've never met her, so I don't know. I, I don't know anything about her, but I do know that she's been holding those rights for quite some time and just waiting for the right deal. And I get it. You know, if you own a movie, you want to make sure you get compensated for it. I understand. But she ended up with a handful of the AIP 
films as well. But this is not an AIP film. I, I don't know where this happened in terms of Susan's involvement with AIP, You know where, where this might have landed. Susan Harton, which I believe she was in one of the uh, Vincent Price, Dr. Goldfoot films as well. Uh, Bikini Machine, I believe. Mm, I haven't seen any of those. Oh, really? Oh, man, they're so goofy. Especially the first one. Goofy fun. I love it. Frankie Avalon and Vincent Price, man. Come on. Mm, I can get down to that. This is Vincent Price, I mean Dr. Goldfoot, with plans to possess most of the money in the world. Frankie Avalon knows it. Dwayne Hickman finds out about it. Susan Hart is an innocent, innocent tool of the plan. Hello, darling. Jack Mullaney helped make the plan. And special guest star, Fred Clark, just doesn't believe it. You're nuts! All right, follow me. These lush bikini babes are built, uh, I mean made, uh, produced to perform. And they have the knack of doing what they're built to do. She walks. She talks. Come here, tiger. She makes love. Did you miss me, precious? Sex has never been funnier. She isn't human. But she is gorgeous. Mr. Armstrong, you're married to a robot. <laughs> Dr. Goldfoot is a dangerous man, but he does have his lighter moments. All right. Shut up. After Igor, after Igor. Dr. Goldfoot. Igor, where have you been? Here they come again. theme song is stuck in my head so when you do watch it be prepared you know it's a catchy theme song uh the rest of the cast we've got robert burton playing the professor galbraith and then the other daughter is bonnie played by judy morton we've got less tremaine in the cast but he's kind of wasted i feel like you know you got less tremaine you should make him the professor or something but yeah i was really surprised because he's second build I love Les Tremaine. He's in one of my favorite Larry Buchanan movies, Creature of Destruction. But I yes. love the dude. And he shows up about 40 minutes in, and he doesn't do a whole lot. He loves his goat. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. about hanging there. I'm not, I'm not going to say anything else. The second, that he, the second that he showed up, and I started to get a feel of what this character was going to be like. All I could think is, okay, they got Les Tremaine for three days. That's really how it feels, right? They got Les Tremaine for a day or two, and uh, 
wonder if he got paid. I hope so. Yeah, I, I, yeah. They used his name to promote the film. But yeah, he's second build, but he's not in there very long. He's not one of the, the core survivor characters. It's kind of went through most of them, but there's also uh, a Marine. The Marine was played by William Boyce. Who also had kind of a clean cut, kind of leading man. I don't know. I could see him in a, a teenage werewolf type film. Not as like the titular monster, but as like the good boy character. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. He didn't do a heck of a lot. He's not particularly memorable in the part, but he does fit the role well. He's a Marine who gets, I guess, separated from his unit. The army was fighting the slime people before they took over L.A. over the course of two days. And he's on his own and runs into these survivors. So you've got this core group of six. Uh, or I'm sorry, of five. You've got the two men, the professor, and the two daughters. So, of course, the two younger men and the two younger daughter, uh, younger women, the daughters, are going to have some romantic uh have feelings toward one another and the professor doesn't seem to mind one bit he's he's all about the science when he walks in on them kissing or whatever no big deal which you know okay the professor was played by robert burton is that correct that's right mm-hmm. um his role was originally intended for an actor named richard arlen who passed on it i suppose and this ended up being burton's last acting part apparently that he shot footage for at least before passing. oh wow really yeah, and looking at his resume, it's like he had a pretty decent career. He was in a, a movie with Orson Welles. I'm trying to remember the title of it. Compulsion. He was in okay. Compulsion, and he was in The Big Heat. Mm-hmm. So he had an interesting career. He was a recurring character on Walt Disney's Wonderful World of Color. Oh, wow. Yeah, so he had a pretty lengthy career and then decided to end it with uh, slime people, I guess. Yeah, I'd be interested to know how that happened. The almighty dollar. He must have gotten paid. Yeah, well, I, I would hope so. He plays the role just fine. I mean, he, he's this scientific. I bought him the whole time. You know, he's a scientific professor type trying to figure out what happened. And we haven't really talked about what happened in the film. The slime people take over. They come from underground. And like Seb was saying earlier, at the beginning of the film, we see the slime person, one of the slime people, just rise. He's right there coming from underground. And the professor tells us later that he that they are trying to uh, – I guess basically terraform the area. They want to cool the temperature down and make it so that they can come up and survive above ground. To do this, they encircle or encase LA in a wall of fog that eventually solidifies. It's kind of a unique take. I've not heard of that before, and I don't think I've heard of it since. No, it is a really cool idea, and I remember that being what freaked me out the most when I was little. Yeah? Yeah, just something about fog always bothered me when I was younger i don't think i could watch most movies with tons of fog like that because they actually freaked me out a lot of fog up where you grew up (laughs) no not even i don't know what it was i remember the same having the same reaction to return of the vampire which i think is probably the second foggiest movie ever made after this one this one does have a lot of fog (laughs) they they spent all the money on the fog machines after they paid off the suits it felt like because towards the end of the film it's really hard to see what's going on at times yeah. But it kind of works, though, too. I mean, it lends itself to the world just fine because because this, this line people are trying to, you know, make the world foggy so they can exist in it. It makes sense. But as an audience member, it does make it a little frustrating to see. What I do like about this movie is that there is a moment where we get to learn a little bit more about what happened over the past couple of days. They find some newsreel footage. They, they end up in, a, in basically a screening room. I think it's at a TV station. 
And they start watching this old newsreel, old like within the past few days, newsreel of what happened with news reports about what's going on in the world. And even though by all rights, this scene probably should have been very boring because <laughs> it's just an exposition dump. I dug it. I really enjoyed it. I, what, what did you think of that sequence? I think it's the most effective part of the movie. In a weird way, it kind of predates the found footage craze in the sense that you're that are looking at actual found footage of the horrifying event that entails the film, and it's effective. It's very creepy at times, actually. Yeah, that's a really good point, that found footage kind of style. I could totally see that. And we've seen that in other movies as well. Not that it's Monster Kid Radio fodder, but like the Cannibal Holocaust, you know, where they're sitting there watching the footage, that sort of thing. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. Huh. I'd rather watch this than Cannibal Holocaust. Yeah, me too, for a number of different reasons. But, um, <laughs> uh, wow, no, that's a good point. That's a good way to look at it, too, is that it's just this found footage moment in this film. I found it creepy as well, especially as the news guy is out in the field trying to talk about what's happening, and then suddenly the fog solidifies. Mm-hmm. And there's this moment of panic and get out, and everybody's got to evacuate, and the army official comes up and tells everybody to leave the city. It's a moment of panic that I felt. And I thought it worked really well. It almost felt like it had been shot at a point when uh, the production was intended to be a lot more ambitious than it ended up being. This film does have that vibe that they created this story that should have had more people involved, more money involved. Well, there was supposed to be an entirely separate group of creatures, too. In it. Oh, yeah? In the original draft of the script, the slime people had a race of wolfmen called voles that they used as kind of ground troopers to hunt down humans. Wow. Yeah, that would have been kind of neat, but couldn't afford more than the slime people, I guess. It would have been neat, but I could see it being cost prohibitive. Man, that would have made the movie a little bit more epic, too. Yeah. As it runs right now, it's just, what, barely over an hour, 15? 76 minutes. I'm trying to imagine how these wolf-looking things would have looked. It would have been neat to see at least production designs or, or sketches. I kind of hope they would have all looked like Glenn Strange from The Mad Monster. Nice. In a forgotten mansion deep in a dismal swampland, a scientist, crazed by his lust for revenge, repairs the last detail of a diabolical death plan. A few moments ago, Fatal was a man, a harmless, good-natured man. Look at him now. He's no longer human. He's a wolf. Snarling, ferocious, lusting for the kill. The beast strikes swiftly. The first of four violent, fiendish murders. Into this crime-ridden situation, a reporter finds the biggest story of his career. What should make a gory enough story for your paper? This is more than just a story to me. He was my friend. Joined by the girl he loves, these two follow the gruesome trail of the mad monster. Every lead proves false. Then, one night, a strange, ominous power draws this girl to a rendezvous with death. Now I want to go watch the mad monster when we're done recording, but like I need help trying to figure out what movie to watch. I've got a stack, you know, <laughs> several in, several feet high of movies I need to watch. Yeah, like I said, I don't know much about the production or, or the script or anything about the film other than just being a fan of it. I mean, I really dig it. I like the music quite a bit. And, you know, I don't know how many episodes of Monster Kid Radio you've listened to, Seb, but longtime listeners know 
we'll even short time listeners know because I can't shut up about it. I love film music. I love film scores. And I really dug the music in this too. It does have kind of a throwback 50s feel at times, kind of like feels a little bit like Kronos, for example. But I still really enjoyed it and thought it was pretty effective. It's probably, in my opinion, Lou Froman's best score for a genre film, uh, mostly because he didn't do a heck of a lot. Uh, Blackenstein is the other big one that he did, and that one... I'm totally in agreement with you about the score, and it definitely brought to mind a lot of uh, 50s creature features, and I feel like that really aided the film in terms of mood, at least. It does make me wonder how long this movie was in production, or at least pre-production, because it does have a lot of holdovers from the 50s, I feel like. I mean, we're in the 60s, so we can show a dead body on the beach within the first few minutes of the film, but it still has that 50s creature feature vibe, especially with the monster design. It all goes back to the monsters, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing just how much something like the design of your movie can really kind of give you a sense of what time it was made in. And I think that's what's cool about monsters is that you can actually see them evolve decade by decade. But the slime people feel like they're very much stuck in 1958. Yeah, they have that vibe. And even the relationship that we see between the two couples, the two relationships that we see growing here, the way the men are always telling the women... I mean, come on. I mean, we, we even see it today a little bit to some extent. But some of the classic monster movies we love, the, the relationship between the sexes isn't always the most progressive. Yeah. It is what it is. You can't damn them for it. It's, it's, they're a product of their time. Totally understand. But when you watch these movies, if you see how the women treat the men and vice versa, you can sometimes kind of peg what decade they're from. Mm-hmm. And this one does have that late 50s kind of vibe. With the men always telling the women to stay behind, you need to be safe here, I'll take care of everything. And just that 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 sense of, I don't know, 1950s man-women relations, I don't know. It's one of those things where, and that's why a lot of people shun remakes, and I'm kind of with them for the most part. But that's why I think a lot of these 50s movies would make interesting updates to just try to make a version of the story where the sides were kind of more balanced. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of the remakes either, but... Yeah, I could see that if you're going to update things a little bit, I guess. I firmly believe if you're going to remake something, remake something that you can do something with, not something that has no business being remade. Right, just don't do a beat-for-beat kind of... Yeah. I think the most obvious beat-for-beat remake would be you know, the Psycho remake, where it literally is a beat-for-beat remake. But yeah, I could see that. Like, they did remake The Blob in the 80s, and it does have a new 80s sensibility versus the 50s sensibility of the original. So I could see that. The thing. Yeah. De Laurentiis, King Kong. You know, I like that one. And I, I know I'm kind of in the minority on that, but I, I really came around to really liking that one after we talked about it here on, on the show with Paul McComas. I, I'm a big fan now. That's not my favorite Kong movie, but that is my favorite Kong. Really? Yeah. Is, is it the the creature design or just what, what is it about that, that movie that you dig? Uh, it's the design and they just nailed the characterization. You know, he's got so much spirit. He's aggressive and savage, but he's got so much soul behind those eyes. It's all in the eyes, I think. Because of the kind of monster it is, because it is a guy in a suit, you can spend some time on the face and you can see that real expression, that, that human expression behind the face and those eyes. I agree with you. I mean, I love my stop motion. I love my stop motion. Don't get me wrong. No, I but agree. it's kind of hard to get that life, you know? Mm-hmm. Anyway, The Slime People, would you see it remade? What would you think if they did a remake of this one? What would you feel about that? You know, if they remade The Slime People, I would hope they'd keep the same monster designs because they are really good and they could still work today. I I think the monsters hold up really well. Me too. They aren't literal slime people, but you can feel the sliminess on them. 
they look gross in a great way. They do, and the way they sound, they, they sound moist. The, the the vocalizations that they have, that that sound effect that they put in there for their grunting or whatever it is they're trying to do. It sounds like they're garbling up phlegm. Exactly, it, it sounds slimy. Yeah, and uh, you know, I think that as silly as the idea of them taking over LA with basically sticks is, I think that the sight of them just marching down the streets with these lances is actually really striking. Yeah, I would love to see like a handful of them just walking down a city street taking taking over. It would be a fun visual, if nothing else. With their wolfman army. Oh, <laughs> yes. I mean, I really hope there's a sketch of that somewhere. I would love to see what they had in mind. It's a shame Robert Hutton passed away in 89, I believe it was, because I would love to have gotten like I don't know. He must have had some production art laying around. He had to be. Yeah, he would have to have something. I can't imagine. I don't know. He didn't get paid. <laughs> so maybe he just threw it all away in disgust. I don't know. I would love to see something. Listeners, if you have any leads on any material about the background of what could have been with this line, people, let me know. And I'll pass it on to Seb, too, because we'd love to see it. Absolutely. So the movie wasn't written by Sutton. He came on to direct the film. It was written by a couple of guys by the name of Blair Robertson and a guy credited as Vance Skartstedt. I don't know why they went with that. His real name is Joseph F. Robertson. I don't know why he went with such a foreign sounding name in the early 60s. I don't understand that choice. But these are the guys who wrote the film and Blair Robertson was involved with the Bad News Bears, the original Bad News Bears. I don't know much about... uh, Joseph F. Robertson, or really the other guy much either. Do you know much about the writing? Well, I know Blair Robinson, besides writing, also played the woman in the newscast footage. Oh, okay. Yeah, so that was something. Beyond that, she wrote an episode of Bonanza. She uh, was a creator for Agent of Harm, which is kind of interesting. I'm not familiar with that. No? Uh, Agent of Harm. I used to see it like here and there, but I never actually took the time to watch it. But it was like a spy movie. It had Wendell Corey in it. Hmm. Yeah. I like my 60s spy films. I should check that out. Yeah. Another another one for the list of things to watch. Thanks, Seb. You're welcome. Because <laughs> I don't have enough time to watch movies. Yeah, okay. Now, that one actually sounds interesting. I should check it out. And Joseph F. Robertson uh, went on to have a pretty lucrative career as a uh, director of adult films. <laughs> really? Yeah. Wow. Uh, he directed one of the adult films that Ed Wood wrote in the 60s, actually. Wow. That's, um, well, that's something. <laughs> right? <laughs> that's a career. That's huh. fascinating. I'm looking at his resume now, and I'm just like, wow, this is, um, we go from the slime people to, uh, yeah, a bunch of other things. <laughs> But yes, yeah, Slime People's his only non-pornographic writing work, and he was also the titular hand in the Crawling Hand. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, that's an interesting career. Yeah, that's that's something. <laughs> I don't know what else to say. That's really not in the Monster Kid Radio wheelhouse. So I don't, <laughs> I don't know what else to say there. It's kind of baffling. Yeah. Huh. I wonder if there's a a biography about Mr. Robertson out there, because I want to know how that transition occurred. And it didn't take very long. If you look at his resume, if you look at his filmography, we go from the slime people in 63 to 1969 
to uh, uh, <laughs> wow. Oh, Love Feast and Mrs. Stone's Thing and other type. You know what? This is a rabbit hole I don't want to go down right now. Uh, <laughs> regardless, very amusing uh, bit of trivia. Wow. Um, but, you know, I think it's kind of a shame that this is the only movie that Hutton directed because it is a very sharply directed movie, I think. It's very economic. It's very tight. We don't lose a lot of, of momentum at all, really. I mean, even when we run into the Lust Remain scene, which... You know, it's kind of a hiccup with a chance to put a big name in the movie. But even that sequence, he's not messing around. The movie just kind of zips along. I think you're right. Yeah. And that's the thing about the Les Tremaine character. I just want to say this before we continue is that I love Les Tremaine and I said it before, but I really feel like they got him because they couldn't get John Carradine because it feels like a John Carradine character. It totally does. It feels... With those eyes, you know, the Carradine eyes, this crazed person who's developed a very close relationship. And and I'm not saying that to be funny or like, oh, what's he doing? But that relationship with the goat, I could totally see that being a Carradine thing. Yeah, it's just, you know, I refuse to believe they couldn't afford uh, John Carradine because anybody could afford John Carradine. John Carradine, um, you you dangle a couple of bucks in front of him, he'll take it. Yeah, literally. Like, (laughs) literally $2 is all he needed. But, um... (laughs) Regardless, I'm happy because, you know, Les Tremaine's never a bad thing. I just feel like he probably should have had the professor role, like you said earlier. Yeah. You know, he had the look, especially 60s John Carradine. He definitely had the look for it. Huh. I really do wonder how Les Tremaine got involved. Were Les and Robert friends? I don't I don't know. I, I'd like to know more about that. That's real. Oh, yeah, that's really possible. They probably did work together. But Les Tremaine seemed to have worked with everybody back then. So, Well, that's true, too. Did you know that Les Tremaine dubbed three characters in the English version of King Kong versus Godzilla? Oh, did he really? Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised. I don't know as much as I like about Les Tremaine, but knowing what I do know, I would not be surprised at all. That always makes me happy watching that movie. <laughs> do, do you know which characters he did? Yeah, he's the, uh, you know, the mustachioed commander? Uh-huh. Yeah, that's Les Tremaine. I don't know who else he voices, but there are two other characters that are him. That's awesome. Well, you know, that's something else that kind of struck me about this movie is towards the end, there's a very unexpected bit of graphic violence when Hutton spears one of the slime people. I was shocked by that, too. It's, it's almost as if, even though the movie's not very long, I kind of forgot that we saw a dead body floating around on the beach at the very beginning. We see that, and it's like, what the, um, wow. I, I was really kind of taken aback. I did expect the female characters to react a little bit more to this guy coming back with blood all over him, but... I was really shocked to see that. You're right. That was, that was something. It seems like really, uh, it seems really plain at first. He just spears the thing, but then there's a shot of its slime blood guzzling out the end of the lance. And I'm, first of all, that makes no sense, but also it's very gratuitous for the kind of movie it is. They make a point of actually including a close up of that happening. It's not like something that just happens incidentally and somebody, threw some blood on something somewhere. It is a gratuitous shot. We see it. They don't shy away from it. And again, this is the sixties. So things are starting to seep into these types of movies. We can get a little bit more blood, a little bit more graphicness, but I I did not expect it because the rest of the movie feels like a fifties monster movie. You know, the fact that that's a close up makes me wonder if they looked at a rough cut of the movie, the producer said it needed more violence. So they went and got an insert shot of that. Oh, you know, yeah, it's got that feel, doesn't it? It, yeah. I wonder. Again, 
I wish there was more material on this out there. Maybe I just didn't look hard enough. Maybe there's something out there that I just I'm not aware of. But I'd like to learn more. I'd like to know more because it does feel like that. I wonder. With the amount of things that are getting Blu-ray releases, I wish this would get one with a good commentary on it. That'd be good. I don't think anybody who was involved with the movie is still around outside of Susan Hart, who may or may not be up for it. But I wonder if there's anybody who was involved in the production who's still with us who could give us any of this information. No one can hope. What did you think of the looters, the 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 bums that show up in the in the TV screening room? What did you think of that bit? That was the only part of the movie that felt like padding to me. Kind of extra and just kind of tossed in there. And maybe a reason to get him out of the screening room into a different set. One of my biggest pet peeves with some monster movies is when they feel the need to include a human antagonist, even though there's no uh, real point to it. And that's very much what it felt like to me. Hmm. It felt yeah. like It felt like a forced attempt at doing some sort of human conflict in the midst of trying to fight the creatures. I feel like it just took away from the fact that they were supposed to be fighting the slime people. And to be clear, it doesn't last very long. It's just, like I said, enough to chase them out of the screening room into a different part of the studio. And I do like that they were able to run around this TV studio. I think it was an interesting location and and set piece. But yeah, it does feel a little extra, a little superfluous. Probably not as necessary. I did like that, like I said, it shot was a TV studio. I love that they actually sit down at a set, basically, at one Uh point to discuss what they're going to do. I loved that, and I'm sure it was just somebody called a TV studio and said, hey, can we shoot in there for the weekend, and they made it happen. I kind of wish the entire movie, well, at least the majority of it did still take place in that TV station post that scene, which is why I think I also have a disdain for the looters, because they eventually drive us out of what I think is the most interesting location in the film you know and that's it they they do run around a lot outside and some abandoned streets which i'm sure they just shot some early morning somewhere or it could have been a standing set somewhere but we see these types of things in in everything from star trek episodes to you know a thousand other monster movies made at the time how many monster movies do we get set in a tv station especially from this era you know i can't think of any at all and also interesting fact is that that was the old Warner Brothers studio where they shot the jazz singer. Oh, really? Wow. So, yeah, just standing sets and, and, and TV stations. I mean, it's a fascinating place to, to put. I can't imagine that audiences of the day, we didn't have the internet back then. We didn't have a thousand TV channels and a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff. How many people knew how the sausage was made when it came to television production? So it would have been a fascinating location to spend more time in and, and give you instant interest visual interest if nothing else with all the cameras and the lights and the way everything was set up i would have loved to spend more time there i I agree with you there it's kind of sad because i feel like this might be the only movie where you actually get a view of that studio because it's probably all demolished by now yeah i can't imagine even if it was a standing set that they were shooting outside on the city streets i can't imagine it's still around that's a real bummer and that's one of the things that i love about these movies and i've mentioned this before and you know fans of these movies i'm sure agree with me that I love the monster movies. I love watching the monsters. I love watching this stuff. But if you look beyond that, you get to see a glimpse at something that doesn't exist anymore. It's a historical document. And whether it's the way that people treat each other with the relationships between men and women or, or the races or, or these old beautiful buildings that aren't around anymore or interesting locations that aren't here anymore. I just love watching the movies for that alone. And for that reason, I'd recommend this movie hands down. People need to see this, I think. Yeah, and you know, I feel like the movie, 
the movie gets a bad rap, and it didn't strike me as much as it did when I was younger, but it's not a bad movie in the slightest. I mean, it's a low-budget movie, and it shows its its budget issues, but I think the monsters are great, and I don't think you see many zippers on the back of those suits. I think they're pretty well done. And even if like they did, it wouldn't bother me, because again, the design is just so striking and kind of creepy looking that I could see past any issue with it. I agree. The only time they look goofy is whenever they fall over and roll on their back. <laughs> they do look a little silly then, but you know, I don't know. I I'm still okay with it. Yeah, me too. I, you know, I don't hate the show or anything, but I feel like this is another movie that has been tainted in people's minds because of mystery science theater 3000. I was going to ask you about that. So are you a fan of MST 3k? I'm a fan of the show, not of its fan base. Okay. I, well, for the most part, I just don't like, even if a movie's bad, I don't like the idea of watching a movie for the sole purpose of mocking it. I feel like that's such destructive, hateful behavior. I don't like that in the slightest. Sure. And I like, I think that's because when I was little, the local movie theater, the guy who ran it, like every Halloween, he'd do a triple feature of some 50s and 60s B movies. And I was the only one who would sit there not mocking the movie. So it's kind of ingrained in my mind to have a disdain for that kind of behavior. Whenever we go to uh, like a weird Wednesday event here at the Joy Cinema here in, in the Portland area, when we have the free monster movies there, there is that kind of sense. We, we kind of make fun of the movie a little bit, but... I do cringe at that because, you know, like I said earlier, it's a historical document too. And even if you think the movie's laughable, there's still something you to enjoy or respect in the movies. I grew up um, respecting the movies. And then when MST3K came along, I enjoyed the show too, but I think you're right. It has kind of given us all or given a lot of people so-called permission Mm -hmm. to amateur hour riff the movies themselves. And it is tough. The big issue is that a lot of the movies on that show aren't bad movies. Like Revenge of the Creature, The Dead yes. The Mole People. The Mole People's a great movie. Um, mm. They did This Island Earth as the feature film. And in that that drove me nuts because This Island Earth is a, a gorgeous film. It's a go- It was one of Universal's highest budgeted movies at the time. Yeah. That was a massive production. And even worse, they cut that movie right down because the move, I think the MST3K movie is only like 75 minutes. Yeah, they had to cut some out of it, which is unfortunate. I mean, it's it's a gorgeous film. Universal and everybody involved worked so hard to make that movie. What was it? Two and a half years in the making. Yeah, and man, it was, it was frustrating. I have to admit, I do own MST3K, the movie but mostly because I wanted the special features on disc. Uh, I don't think I've actually watched the film itself, but I have watched all the back behind the scenes stuff. So, you know, like in some, like they did a couple Godzilla movies and I'm not in favor of mocking Godzilla in the slightest or even gamma. I'm a big gamma fan. So that kind of irritates me that they did a bunch of those. Yeah. It's, it's a love hate thing. You know, I think without MST three K, we probably wouldn't have some of these movies in the pop culture awareness now, like Manos. You know, we wouldn't have awareness of that these days. And I actually kind of dig Mono straight. I, I know that puts me in the very small minority of people, but I really enjoy that movie, just watching it for the historical stuff, if nothing else. I'm in an even smaller minority where I think Manos is actually a scary movie. You know, there's enough in there. That's one of the very few movies where I watch it and I don't feel like I should be. It like It's a joke in MST3K, but in the opening shots, it feels like you're watching like a snuff movie almost. Just oh, by wow. Ha- rainy it is it looks upsetting oh man manos chills me i can't 
watch it alone at night. That's a very awesome <laughs> movie. Wow, I, I've never really heard anybody describe it that way, but I could see that it has this kind of sense that we're not supposed to be watching this. Torgo is a disturbing figure, and when you find out he's supposed to have goat legs, I'm even more bothered by him. In a good way. I mean, it's it's effective, it's scary, and yeah, I mean, I dig that movie, but without MSC3K, we wouldn't have Manos. You know, I, I feel like it would have been left in the dustbin at some library somewhere, and that's about it. So I do respect and appreciate MSC3K for things like that. It did put Gamera in the American pop culture consciousness for for a long time without anything from Japan. I mean, wh- wh- how else are we going to get our Gamera? But yeah, you're right. I'm not a big fan of mocking the movies, especially the ones that I feel are are good. Revenge of the Creature. How can you mock a John Agar film? Come on, man. A John Agar film with the single greatest rubber monster made it an American film in the 1950s. I just don't get it, man. Oh, you know, I think the giant claw is a great movie even. And they mocked that. The giant claw has got some, some stuff going for it. It does suffer a little bit due to budget. Yeah. You know, I always say this though, that monster may look silly, but don't act like you wouldn't be terrified if something that big that looked like that came flying towards you. That's a really good point. It might look ridiculous like a busted down turkey on a string, but if we saw that, you're absolutely right. I'd be terrified if I looked out my window right now and saw that coming. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's a pretty expressive puppet. I like how its nostrils flare. There, there are some attentions to detail to that that get overlooked because we're too busy trying to laugh at it, I guess. I don't know. And I think the slime people is very similar to that. Cause I was reading reviews for it where people either thought the movie was boring and aimless or that it was just too laughable. And I don't think it's either of those things really. A couple of years ago, there was a TV series, the dome based on the Stephen King series. That's what it was called, right? The dome. And it was based on the Stephen King novel about a city that had a dome go over it. And I can't help but think maybe <laughs> I don't know. Stephen King did like these types of movies. Could this yeah. have influenced that at all? I mean, cause it's a dome of fog that solidifies over a city. No, Stephen King st- homaged a lot of these movies. So that wouldn't shock. <laughs> and, and good for him. I mean, he loves these movies too. You know, if you haven't read the movie dance macabre or I'm sorry, read the book dance macabre by Stephen King, he spends a lot of time praising these films. So, Loves robot monsters. He does. He does. That's where I first learned about the movie Freaks was from that book, which is terrifying in a completely different way than the slime people or Monos. Probably in the same way as Monos, actually. Freaks kind of exists on this. They're right on the line of being exploitive, but Todd Browning had an affinity for these. I don't know. It's a movie that makes me... I don't feel like a good person after I've watched it. Yeah, and I've only watched it once or twice. It's a tough one to watch. It's not a comfy movie. When I went to watch it based on Stephen King's comments on it in his book, I expected something a little bit different. Just because it was Stephen King, I figured, you know, it's going to be a fun little horror movie. No, it's not. Like, I mean, yeah, it is, but it's also barely a horror movie. It's very much just a very grim melodrama. To call it a horror movie, then you'd have to refer to the titular characters as something horrific. And I feel like that is what ultimately makes it feel bad. I think because it was a Todd Browning film and given the types of movies he was known for, even though really he didn't do a lot of horror movies outside of Dracula and a few things with Lon Chaney, a lot of his stuff, again, were just kind of melodramas or dramatic pieces with people with disfigurements or whatever. Uh, Given because it was Todd Browning, I think he gets lumped into that horror movie category. 
kind of the way the movie The Man Who Laughs, which is another silent film. Uh, which is not. Awful. It's it's not. I mean, it's horrific what happened to the guy, but or similar to how uh, the Hunchback in Notre Dame gets slummed in with the other monsters as well, and that's the furthest thing from a monster story. And we'll talk about him here on Monster Kid Radio because I love him, but no, when mm-hmm. you really look at them, they're not. They're not a monster from the deep. They're not a vampire. They're not a, a man made from parts of other men. They aren't a slime person. They aren't. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> which, which is another interesting thing while I was watching this is that. So they're referred to as slime people. So I'm going to assume that they're genderless, which makes me wonder, is there just like a single, are those eight slime people the only slime people that we see in the film? Huh. Like, is that? species and those eight are what took over the city of LA (laughs) they took over the city of LA and like how long were they sitting down there like were there more of them at some point it's just I doubt that they would have waited till there was only eight of them left to take over LA so I'm inclined to believe there was always only eight of them (laughs) (laughs) they do appear genderless they never really refer to them although they do take the one girl what are they going to do with the girl that's what I want to know because with the others, they're just trying to kill him. But they take the girl back. and like, Because it's a monster. you got to have the shot of the monster carrying the girl away. Oh, that's true. That's true. And she had the uh, the disadvantage of being blonde. So they took her, I guess. I don't know. I don't know. It's King Kong logic. The monster has to take the King girl. King Kong logic. I like it. That should be on a t-shirt. It's King Kong logic. That's also, <laughs> what I do, uh, that's also what I call whenever people ask why dinosaurs from the Jurassic era and dinosaurs from the Cretaceous area are existing together. It's King Kong logic, man. Kong logic. I like it. I love it. How did they build that wall? King Kong logic. <laughs> I'm going to start using that here on the show anytime somebody starts questioning these things. King Kong logic. I love it. How'd they get him to New York? And that is the big the big plot hole of that one. But hey, man, King Kong logic. King Kong logic. Can't question it. That's right. Slime people. Man, if they made a sequel to the slime people, I hope at least one of them would have had them fighting a guy in a gorilla suit. <laughs> I love it. I'd love to see that. It's never too late. Somebody should do a fan suit of uh, the slime people because I'd like to see something like them again. They do look really cool. And you see a lot of them for the most part in a weird way. Yeah. They have screen time, but most of the time they're covered in fog. They are. And I feel like they don't all look identically alike. I feel like they, they have some differences to them. A couple of the different suits, so they don't... I mean, I noticed that some of them had, like, flatter faces than the others. Which I found an interesting choice. I mean, it does make it feel like, I don't know, there's more than just a couple people. It adds production value. Yeah, exactly. And they did have exactly eight stuntmen, so none of them got paid, by the way. I'm, I'm curious as to what the finances were on this film. <laughs> At this rate, I'm wondering exactly who did get paid. Yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> Did this film, is this film in the public domain? I, I'm not, I, I run into conflicting reports on that. Do you know? Yeah, you see, so do I, because I used to see it a lot on those 50 movie packs. Right. And I did a little bit of Googling before we got on here, and I could not find a yes or no answer. Now, I know a couple of years ago, VCI Entertainment put it out as a double feature with The Crawling Hand. Um, I don't know if it's because VCI licensed it. Or if because it is public domain and they were able to get away with it. So I, I, I don't know. If it's in the public domain, though, man, I'd remake it, sequelize it, run with it. I just want to see more slime people. Yeah, I, I agree. And, you know, I think it's 
pretty clever that they put with the crawling hand since the crawling hand stars one of the writers of the slime people. Which makes me think that it's probably not in the public domain and they license it as part of a package deal that probably the same library has both these films because of the connection between them. Yeah. Yeah, that makes the most amount of sense. But I, I don't know. I wouldn't even begin I don't know to begin where to look, so you know what kind of a release this had? Like how wide it was? Theatrically? Yeah. No idea. Yeah, I didn't really have a a huge distribution deal. It wasn't distributed by any of the big monster studios, any of the big studios. Donald J. Hansen Enterprises was the distributor on this, and I, I've never even heard of them prior to digging around on this film. Um, so I don't really know. Not even productions or film releasing enterprises. <laughs> yeah, which for all we know, it could have just been a one group put together to put this film out, and that was it. So... Um we were talking about the creature suits earlier, and I just did a bit of quick research. And the monster suits were done by a guy named Harry Woolman. Oh, okay, okay. Who did effects for such films as Laser Blast, um, the The Incredible Melting Man. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, Doctor Black and Mister Hyde. Oh no. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, I actually like that movie. Yeah, so I shouldn't. <laughs> the Mummy and the Curse of the Jackals, Curse of oh. the Headless Horseman, Dolomite. For black exploitation fans. Huh. Yeah. So he had a pretty good career. A quiet town. Nestled in the California foothills. A timeless place where past and present merge. Violence rages as an age-old curse comes to life, leaving death in its trail. Terror and a new excitement explodes on the screen. Curse of the Headless Horseman, coming to this theater soon. Rated PG. And he was assisted, by, I don't know who did what, but he was assisted by a guy named Charles Duncan, who did the effects for Plan 9 from Outer Space. That suddenly makes a lot of sense. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and if you look at his resume, this looks like it was the last film he worked on. Yeah, it is. And one other interesting bit of uh, information is that the director of photography, William Traiano, also did a lot of work for Al Adamson and David Friedman. He shot Horror of the Blood Monsters and She Freak, or the two of them respectfully. Huh. Okay. Huh. Yeah. And the Wild, wo- uh, the wild World of Batwoman as well. <laughs> that movie's fun. Yeah, that's another good MST3K movie. Yeah. Again, without MST3K, would people even know about it these days? I don't know. But Yeah, that's you know, true. It's good stuff. Well, like I said, it came out on DVD a couple years back. Uh, you can still get it. It's still in print. 15 bucks, double feature with The Crawling Hand. I recommend it. I, I think people should give this a fair shake. And to watch it with The Crawling Hand would be a lot of fun. Just because you've got the connection there and make a fun double feature. Would, would you recommend it, I assume? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you kind of want to see a film that kind of sums up 
the fifties turning into the sixties. I think this movie is a really good representation of that. Yeah. Yeah. It's a nice little bridge. There. So 15 bucks for that. And if you want to spend $20, you can get yourself a DVD of the upcoming movie, like animator. Yes. You, you like that segue? I love that segue. <laughs> How slimy is like animator? Very slimy. There's so oh. much. The movie's 90% slime. You won't be able to see anything that's going on. There's so much slime. <laughs> well, okay. Well, as long as, as long as it's not fog, you know, we're f- <laughs> is, is like animator going to be feature length. It is going to be feature length. Can, can you tell us anything about it without spoiling it? Yes. It's uh, about a mad scientist as any good movie is who discovers that monsters exist because there's a very rare strain of DNA where this DNA kind of gives human beings alternate evolutionary paths. So he figures out how to isolate it and he makes a serum that a group of teenagers stumble upon. One of them gets exposed to the serum and becomes a radioactive toxic werewolf. As you do. As you do. The only one who can save the day is the mad scientist's former lab assistant, played by Joel D. Weinkoop. So Joel D. Weinkoop, I, I think if if you don't know the name, you've certainly seen his face in a handful of things. He, he's done a lot of these, and I don't mean this disrespectfully, a lot of these lower budget type you know, genre films and other films. And he's just fun. He's just fun to watch. And Has any of it been shot yet? Or are you still in pre-production on this? We're still in pre-production. We got a couple casting parts to finish, and the monster suit is still being made. And according to the Indiegogo page, you've got a, a, a set goal of eight thousand dollars. Of this, as of this recording, we're a little over a thousand right now. I'll make sure there's a link to the campaign in the show notes. It looks like it's going to be fun. I, I know I'm known as the monster kid guy, I like my black and white monster movies. But you give me a good creature feature, and I'm still going to dig it. And this one looks like it's going to be a lot of fun. And we are very firm in the fact that. We're only going to use effects that were, you know, available from the 70s straight on through to the 90s. So there will be absolutely zero CGI or computer imagery in the film. Oh, wow. Okay. All practical effects, huh? It's going to be a man in a suit. Then we have a fully expressive wire puppet for the close-ups. Is the suit designed at this point or is it still in the works? It's designed what people like if people on the Indiegogo page, they'll see a piece of concept art. It's basically going to look like that. Okay. And who's building the suit? Can you say the suits being done by Toby Johansson, who directed a film called Backyard Vampire, which is very fun. He did the creature effects and directed that. And then the puppets being made by Dustin Wade Mills, who directed the puppet monster massacre Mm -hmm. and, uh, the Ballad of Skinless Pete, and a bunch of movies. And he's a really talented effects artist, so I was really happy to have him on board. And economical. I, I know he's he's been cranking out movies for a while, and he, he keeps his budget low but still puts out good production value. So that's fantastic you've got him on board. Oh, yeah. Dustin's, Dustin's one of my heroes. The dude is what I want to be. What he's doing is what I want to be doing pretty much. <laughs> nice. Do you have a, a production start date on this? Or are you kind of waiting to see how the Indiegogo campaign shakes out? No matter what happens, we start shooting in July. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, keep us posted, man. I, I want to hear more about this movie. Absolutely. I'll like, you know, whenever something significant crops up, I'll make sure you have first dibs on the news. <laughs> That'd be great. We'll make sure listeners know about it too. And beyond this, I mean, you, you've been involved in other film projects. Any other movies right now that people should check out that you've been involved with? Yeah, like I mentioned earlier, people should be really excited for Johnny Gruesome. 
because it's going to appeal to pretty much any fan of any period of the genre. Because if you're a monster kid who likes the stuff from the 30s straight on through the 60s, there's a bunch of homages to everything because Greg's a monster kid. And if you're into the heavier, more extreme stuff, it's got its moments. It's a good mix, I think. What about you? You got any other projects coming up yourself outside of this? Or are you all focusing on like Animator right now? Yeah. I mean, there's a couple that I don't want to talk about yet till they're a little bit more set in stone. But sure. I have a bunch of projects I've been working on for years. Like I'm still working on adapting Frankenstein for something I want to do in a couple of years. Oh, wow. Um, well, definitely keep me posted on that. That sounds great. Yeah, Frankenstein is something I've been wanting. I think that anybody who watches these movies dreams of their own version of that story. So it's just kind of trying to find a way to make... I need to make one that's different enough to warrant existing at this point. There have been a lot of Frankensteins. A lot. Beyond that, it's not set in stone or anything, but I also want to do a dinosaur movie. That's something I've been working towards for a while. Kind of going back to your, your first love, paleontology? Yeah, it's about the general idea I have is it's about a paleontologist who gets possessed by the spirit of a dinosaur that they dig up. <laughs> that sounds great. I love it. Yeah, that you see, I think it's one of those things that's just kooky enough to uh, probably work. Well, keep me posted on that. We're friends on Facebook, so drop me a line. Anything new comes along and you know, keep me posted about the progress of Flicanimator and I wish you the best of luck, Sab. Thank you so much, Derek. So, of course, huge thanks to Seb for being part of the show this week. Loved chatting about the slime people with somebody new, and I don't think it's going to be the only time he's on the show. I'm definitely planning on inviting him to come on back, if not to talk about another movie, then just maybe talk about one of his upcoming projects, another movie that he might do down the line after he's done with Lycanimator, of course. Go to Indiegogo.com and look up Lycanimator, or look up his name, Seb Godain. It's S-E-B. And his last name is spelled G-O-D-I-N, or follow the link in the show notes over at MonsterKidRadio.net. A couple of things about the conversation that I had with Seb. I think at one point I referred to Robert Hutton as Robert Sutton. It is actually Robert Hutton. Also, at the very, very beginning I think I kind of implied that I actually appeared on an old episode of the B-Movie cast to talk about the slime people. I, I, I thought I did. Of course, I'm still on a lot of cold medication and such, but I went to go look at the B-Movie cast archives and I don't see the slime people even anywhere in there. So maybe I didn't talk about that movie with Vince on the show or hear about it on the show. Maybe I just talked to Vince about it either by email or in person or, or something. I, I just, I know that, I have memory of speaking with Vince about it. Obviously, it wasn't for an episode of the B-Movie cast. And finally, earlier today, now I'm recording this segment on Wednesday night before the release of the show. I just spoke with Scott Morris, relatively frequent guest here on Monster Kid Radio, and we'll be on the show again in a couple of weeks to talk about the car. Well, Scott is a huge fan of Mystery Science Theater 3000. He and I have had hours and hours and hours of conversation about MST3K and He's a huge fan, like I said. When I told him we were talking about the slime people this week on the show, he's like, well, did you mention the slime people and Miss T3K connection? I'm like, well, I, I don't know what it was. Now, unfortunately, I wasn't recording, so I'm just going to relate to you what he relayed to me. Apparently, way back in the day, 
When Joel Hodgson wanted to put MST3K together, when he wanted to get the show going, he was working at a local station somewhere, and he actually used clips of the slime people as a proof of concept to get his bosses on board with allowing him to use the facilities at the station to make the series. So the slime people pretty much, okay, maybe not pretty much, but indirectly responsible for birthing or being part of the birthing process. Ugh. Slime people birthing anything sounds terrible, but part of the birthing process for Mystery Science Theater 3000. I thought that was pretty cool. Now, I've already got the recording with Scott about the car in the can, but next time I record with him, I might ask him to go into more detail and talk a little bit more about the history of MST3K. Might be a fascinating show anyway. Stay tuned. Again, Seb, thank you very much. And listeners, right now, there's about 10 days left for you to help support Like Animator. Head over to Indiegogo. Help a fellow monster kid out. They came from beyond space to enslave the Earth. Look out! Only yesterday they were scientists investigating strange meteorites that landed from space. Suddenly, they're dehumanized, blood-chilling hate robots, killer creatures determined to destroy Earth. Connections completed and quite satisfactory. We can now proceed with the next part of our plan. They came from beyond space, and they brought with them such horrors as the world has never seen. secret headquarters where they deep freeze humans to use as slave labor on their planet. I warned you not to come here. Now you'll have to take the consequences. Mr. Hyde, a monster he could not control, had taken over his very soul. A screaming demon rages inside, turning him into Mr. Hyde, an unstoppable black superman. Super strong, supernatural, and super bad. His punch can topple a skyscraper. His kick can split the earth in two. More destructive than an earthquake. Mightier than a tidal wave. A one-man disaster area. Dr. Block and Mr. Hyde, when you're seeing what ain't, you're looking at a haint. Shot full of lead and he still ain't dead. Jump back, Jack, for your skull is cracked. Dr. Block and Mr. Hyde, starring Bernie Casey, Rosalind Cash, Stu Gillum, directed by William Blackyella Crane. Dr. Block and Mr. Hyde, rated R, under 17, not admitted without parents, so bring your mama, she'll like it too. So how would you describe a podcast like The Shared Desk? It's a podcast that took its sweet time to do a promo. (laughs) Yeah, well, I think that goes without saying. I mean, you could say The Shared Desk is a podcast about collaboration, because that's what we do. Wait, 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 there's a lot more to The Shared Desk. You got our Loot Crate Looky-Loo. Oh, what's in the box? And then what we're doing when we're not writing... 
Usually it's pretty nerdy. Nerd! And then there are the drop-ins. Has the whole world gone crazy? Yes. There are drop-ins. And we love having guests on the show. It's the shared desk after all. And if it's Katie or Lauren, you get some lovely singing as well. So find The Shared Desk on iTunes, Stitcher, or at thesharedesk.com. The Shared Desk. Two writers. One podcast. Different different points points of view. Steve, help me. Help me. Paul, what does it mean I'm stacked? Stacked? You'll experience a new dimension in motion picture thrills when you see The Crawling Hand. The Crawling Hand demands to live, commands you to see it. A disembodied hand holds the key to a killer more deadly than the supernatural. The remains of an astronaut destroyed in space fights for life. A requiem for an astronaut. He's a killer. He doesn't come over here quietly and put that bottle down. I'll have to shoot him. But he's just a kid! It strikes deadly, silently, it will not relent, the crawling hand must destroy in order to exist, it will strike you deadly, the crawling hand. Hello everyone, I am Rod Barnett. I'm Troy Gwynn. And we are your hosts for NashyCast, the podcast about the films of Paul Nashy. We, for over five years, have brought you the joys of Spanish cinema, filtered through our brains to you. Yes. Now, what is it that qualifies two Southern boys to talk about films that came out of Spain? And I can't think of a single thing. There's nothing that qualifies. Nothing. Nothing. Except that we just love, love them, love them, love them. We love them. NashyCast covers the films of Paul Nashy and any other Spanish horror film that we can pretend we know something about. Uh, yes. If you love beautiful women wearing incredibly short miniskirts in subarctic temperatures <laughs> chased by werewolves in leisure suits. If you love werewolves, vampires, unidentifiable beasts, or crazy people driving women around and talking like a maniac. <laughs> yes, flying cats, beheadings with axes. <laughs> Blood that looks like Sham- melted crayons. Shambling zombies, yeah. Some of the films that we've covered in the past are Mark of the Werewolf. Howl of the Devil. Vengeance of the Zombies. Or Arises from the Tomb. Tombs of the Blind Dead. Vampire's Night Orgy. Ooh, yes. Join us on this journey through the golden age of Spanish horror where Paul Nashi, Leon Klamowski, Jess Franco, Amando Diasorio take us through a filter Espanol. Join us for the Nashi cast. Hey, during that last break, I played a promo for a podcast called The Nashy Cast. Rod Barnett and Troy Gwynn are friends of mine, and I want to say 
congratulations to these two guys. I don't know all the particulars. I don't know how it happened. It doesn't matter. But how cool that Rod and Troy are now going to be involved in a commentary track for a movie called Inquisition. Yeah, it's a Paul Nashie film from 1976. It's going to be released from Mondo Macabro. Pete Toombs is the man behind Mondo Macabro. Great guy. I actually chatted with him. Man, it's been a long time now. At least it feels like a while. Back when I was doing the Dorado Films podcast, I had him on that show, and we chatted a little bit about what he does at Mondo Macabro. And that they're going to be putting out Inquisition on Blu-ray. I don't know anything about the movie. I know very little when it comes to Paul Nashi. Don't tell Rod or Troy I said that. Actually, compared to those guys, I'm just, man, I know nothing. And I need to know more because I've enjoyed everything that I've seen him in. Anyway, Inquisition is coming out on Blu-ray, and Rod and Troy are providing an audio commentary for that film. It's going to be coming out probably late April, early May, Uh, That's the special edition, and then the regular retail version will be coming out in June. I'm assuming their commentary is going to be on both releases, so that's very, very cool. And I just chatted with Rod a second ago on Facebook, and they've got some other commentary tracks in the works. That's all I'm saying. Stay tuned. I'll I'll mention it here because they're friends, but also pay attention to the NashiCast or the Bloody Pit of Rod website over at pitofrod.blogspot.com. There's a link in the show notes to that. Now, this does bring us to the end of this episode of Monster Kid Radio. Once again, I'm going to ask you to support our efforts to get Vince Rotolo into the Monster Kid Hall of Fame over at the Rondo Awards at rondoaward.com. You don't have to do anything else. You don't have to vote in any other category if you don't want to. Just please drop them a line at T-A-R-A-C-O at AOL.com and tell them that you're voting for Vince Rotolo for Monster Kid Hall of Fame. Check out the ballot for all the other categories too. Monster Kid Radio's in there, a handful of other amazing podcasts, and a number of other amazing nominees on that ballot. It's a great ballot this year, really stuffed with some amazing material and people and well, I, I recommend just checking it out anyway, but we really do want to see Vince get into the Hall of Fame. Rich Chamberlain's talked about it on his website. Stephen D. Sullivan's talked about it in an issue of Monster Magazine last year. So fingers and tentacles crossed, we can make it happen. If you are a Facebook user, please consider giving us a like by going to facebook.com slash monsterkidradio. And if you want to join the group, well, we have a heck of a community there as well. This is all available on our website, along with our contact information. Our email address is right there, monsterkidradio at gmail.com. And our voicemail line, it's 503-479-5657. It's 503-4795-MKR. If you have any thoughts about this episode or the previous 310, well, I'd love to hear it, and we'd love to include you in a future episode of the podcast. Other things at our website, I mentioned the letterboxed link and that MKR guest application Patreon. Patreon is a way for you to help support those endeavors, those artists and creators with a little bit of scratch. Sometimes it can take a little bit of money to to create, to write, to make art, to produce podcasts. All sorts of different projects are supported by Patreon. Monster Kid Radio is one of them. And I've been very lucky because I've got a number of amazing patrons who've been helping Monster Kid Radio out. If you head over to our Patreon page, either by following the link on our website or go to patreon.com slash monsterkidradio, you'll see what our different levels are, how you can support the show, and what our goals are. Right now, we're back to trying to reach the Married with Monsters goal, where if we hit a particular dollar amount, we produce an extra monthly podcast featuring myself and my wife, Brenda, 
called Married with Monsters has something to do with monster stuff, but it might not be a classic monster movie. It may just be about her and I talking about something we happened to watch the other night or, or a movie that we saw in the theater that weekend or just general gabbing. It's Married with Monsters and we want to bring that back. Of course, we've got other goals as well. Things like producing fan audio commentaries or creating an audio drama. There's all sorts of things that we want to do for you. So check that out and maybe just share the link. Let people know what's going on with Monster Kid Radio on Patreon. I feel like that's probably a harder sell than I meant it to be. So let me dial it back and tell you what's happening next week on Monster Kid Radio. I have in the can a recording that I did with a fellow podcaster, another new voice, somebody who's never been on the show, but has been on a promo for Monster Kid Radio. So you might recognize his voice if you've heard that promo or if you listen to the Cinema PsyOps podcast. His name is Court PsyOps, and he's going to be here to talk about the movie Bride of Frankenstein. going to be fun. I enjoyed chatting with Court, and I mean, come on, it's Bride of Frankenstein. Even though I love Son of Frankenstein, like I was talking with Seb earlier, Bride of Frankenstein, it is one of the absolute best sequels of all time. And I'm not just talking classic monster movies, I'm talking about horror, I'm talking about all time. Bride, fantastic film, and we're going to dive into it with Court next week. And the week after that, the long-awaited episode with my friend Scott Morris about the car. So that'll be coming soon. Stay tuned for all of that and future episodes of Monster Kid Radio. We're going to talk about all of that here in this feed. So don't change that podcast channel dial. You know what? I think I need some more cold medicine. So I'm going to go ahead and wrap up. Before I do that, though, I want to remind you that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0. Whew unwarded license of course that doesn't apply to the song nuclear winter in the bay city that is from the band the surf zums you can find them at the surf they're also on facebook the ep is called nuclear winter in the bay city the band is based out of lati finland and i'm told by the band that right now they're rehearsing and practicing some new songs and we'll maybe have some new stuff coming out later this year, maybe this summer. I've asked them to keep me posted, but you can follow them on Facebook or on Bandcamp where you can pick up this EP for three pounds. Check it out and let them know that Monster Kid Radio sent you. My name's Derek M. Cook. I'll talk to everybody next week. Ciao. <laughs>